Welcome to episode 132 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our first three-peat guest interview, uh, Ellen Nakashima. Ellen, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's great to be back. Third time. Yes, uh, and uh, this is because uh, she runs the uh, the Nakashima Post, which others uh, call the Washington Post. But uh, uh, she has written so many stories in the last uh, three weeks that uh, uh, they're really going to have to change the name. Uh, I'm also joined by Meredith Rathbone, partner in our international uh, regulation and compliance practice. Uh, welcome, Meredith. Thanks for having me. And uh, Markham Erickson, who uh, is uh, one of the great uh, telecom, internet, and media uh, partners in our firm and who only rarely appears here, uh, uh, and I have to goad him into disagreeing with me, but I'm sure he'll he'll do that. I'll Uh, try to find one or two things. I think you can do it. Uh, And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's jump right in. Meredith, let's start with you. The European Union has proposed a set of export control rules on everything bad about the Internet, as far as I can tell. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, intrusion software, surveillance software. This is uh, meant to establish their moral superiority to everybody else in the the Internet space. Uh, uh, But... What exactly did they say, and what's it likely to mean for uh, uh, companies in Europe, companies in the U.S.? Well, so uh, so you're right that they have cited to human rights concerns as the basis for this, and uh, and what they did was last week the European Commission proposed to expand controls on what they're calling cyber surveillance technology. Uh, and they've done that in a few ways. Um, one is that they've created a new list-based control. So um, for the probably one or two export control nerds out there who are listening to this, you'll know, as I do, that um, the, the, the U.S. and the, the EU and various other countries have this list of controlled items. It has 10 categories. They've actually proposed to add an 11. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. And th- but so this it's a is, big deal. This is not directly Wassenaar, which is the international regulatory or agreement, this, they're going beyond yes, Wassenaar, right. probably hoping that uh, the force of their moral example will, will drag the benighted the United States uh, into uh, imitating their example. Well, I was going to say, yeah, it's not Wassenaar yet. Yes, uh, okay. Yeah. So, and, and in fact, some of the EU countries uh, in in have come out saying they think that these proposals are a good idea, but they're concerned about the EU going it alone, and they'd like to see these integrated into the. Uh, they haven't used the word multilateral control regime, the Wassenaar, but that's what they mean. Yeah. So, so basically, what this does is it creates this whole new category. Two things. One creates this whole new category of controls, which would cover. Uh, surveillance systems, equipment, and components for uh, ICT uh, and for public networks. So things like monitoring centers, uh, retention systems. Uh, these are basically the CALEA uh, uh, capabilities right. uh, uh, and the ability of the government to actually um, 
hook into those capabilities. Right. Yep. Uh, um, and, and so th- those were probably subject to at least very modest controls, aren't they? You know, in, it, there are, there, lots of those types of things get caught up elsewhere in the control regime to some extent. The controls that they're proposing under Category 10 are uh, the the number that they're assigning to them, again, sorry for, for everybody, but the two or three export controls, nurse, but the number that they're assign, assigning to them indicates that they're going to be pretty stringent controls, like a license to virtually, you know, anywhere. Okay. Um, so so that's that's one uh, thing, is that they're, they're creating this whole new control category, which is really is a big deal. Um, the other thing that they're doing is that they're creating some, some catch-all controls. So they've created this definition of cyber surveillance technology, um, which would cover uh, items specifically designed to enable covert intrusion into information and telecommunication systems. And by the way, covert intrusion is not defined. Uh, with and it really be, could be anything, could it? Could it? Be, it really could be anything. Uh, with a view toward monitoring, extracting, collecting, and analyzing data and or incapacitating or damaging the targeted system. And then it gives some examples of what that means, things like digital forensics. Intrusion software is one of them. Good Uh, Lord. So this is almost any network security uh, tool is going to include covert uh, measuring, at least from the point of view of the user or the hacker who's in your system. You want to be covert to him, uh, and therefore you're at least arguably covert uh, within the meaning of this. So they're basically saying we want all um, cybersecurity tools to be strictly controlled. Well, so there is a... not all of these things are controlled in and of themselves all the time. So this catch-all control doesn't control the exports of these types of things always. It, w- it would the list-based right. controls. If they're on the list, they're controlled. Uh, but for this broader catch-all, which goes beyond that new uh, Category 10 listing, uh, this covers things that are going, essentially things that are going to be going to bad People are for bad uses. Uh, okay. So things like if you ha- if you know that it's going to be used for weapons of mass destruction or certain types of military purposes in certain countries, um, terrorism used by persons complicit in human rights abuses. Who knows what that means? Uh, um, and there's and that this is export controls to the United States. <laughs> well, some people might uh, might argue that I suppose in Europe. And most but, of them are, are in Europe. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, but 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 anyway, so so that's that's what this is going to cover. And one thing that it may do is create an additional due diligence requirement for people who are trying to export these things from Europe. So I, I have to say, I mean, I, this it's it's. Nuts on many levels. I mean, one of them is uh, uh, China is not going to be subject to these restraints. So they're basically handing over the wiretap market to Huawei and ZTE. They're handing over cybersecurity markets to the United States unless the United States is dumb enough to go along with the Wassenaar proposal. Uh, um, They're just getting out of the business of making these sales, which, you know, the U.S. all during the Cold War had stricter controls than Europe, uh, and we thought we were being more moral, and they thought they were being better businessmen. Uh, And I suppose if you want to put the shoe on the other feet, uh, uh, we can be better businessmen and they can be more moral, and everybody will be happy. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's that's certainly the way some people are looking at it. There, uh, There absolutely will be... 
pressure to expand. So, the, you know, the, the controls themselves, these specific controls, there are lots of concerning things about them, including unclear definitions and those types of things. Um, the, perhaps the most concerning thing is that in, with the creation of a, a brand new category of controls that's intended to focus on cybersecurity technology, you just you, this could be the the beginning of uh, well the beginning of the end. It's a very slippery slope, and who knows what else they'll add to this category. Right. And, and bringing hum, making human rights an export control uh, issue is in many ways quite inconsistent with the whole point of export controls, which up to now has been to keep technologies, certain technologies away from governments who otherwise can't get it. But this they can get, they can get it from Israel, they can get it from uh, uh, the Chinese, uh, they can get it from hackers. And, and, and so it's it's not that hard to get. Um, and so making it an export control item just means that you're saying we don't want our respectable companies to be dirtying their hands with this evil stuff, uh, which is kind of consistent with their view of the Internet. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, this is just part of the long withdrawing roar of European IT uh, capabilities. They're just, they're out of it. Uh, and so they're, they're saving their uh, fire for big symbolic uh, protests. Well, that's certainly what the opponents to this yes. are arguing, well, I, and, and there I are, I, by I, the I way, myself as one. Then. <laughs> I, I should I should add that there are, by the way, it, European industry is starting to mobilize uh, around this. It's been kind of kicking around for a while. Uh, the EU says they've been consulting with industry. Industry says not nearly enough, and uh, and and their concerns. So there will be a, a period of time. This still needs to go through. Uh, approval by the European Parliament and the European Council. So, you know, this could take months, it could take years, depending on uh, how much of a fuss industry kicks up. So one more reason for the Brits to celebrate Brexit, right? Because they won't have to worry about this. Uh, Okay, Um, uh, Markham, uh, there's a whole series of wiretap cases floating around against Google and Yahoo, uh, and uh, Yahoo settled theirs, uh, but Google uh, is stuck in front of Judge Coe, and Judge Coe is not uh, not letting them go easily. No, that's right. Uh, Google is, uh, this is part of a multi-year uh, effort by a group of plaintiffs to uh, find Google, Google liable uh, for violating the Wiretap Act. Uh, as well as the California equivalent to the Wiretap Act, uh, for what it does when you send an email through its Gmail service, either through the Google-branded Gmail service, the one that's available to all users where you get a uh, at gmail.com email address, or with the uh, third-party educational or business uh, Gmail apps where you get the domain name of the educational institution or the business that's contracting with Google to provide email service, where uh, Google uh, will uh, scan the contents of those emails in order to deliver more targeted uh, search results or more targeted advertisements uh, to the users. Uh, the classes included not only... Uh, Gmail users, but in this particular case, also a subset of that class, which are uh, non-Gmail customers uh, who are emailing with Gmail customers. Uh, 
Right, because they they didn't sign anybody's uh, uh, terms of service. That's they, they just replied to an email that they got from somebody with a Gmail uh, address. So they're they're in a better position to claim that they didn't sign away their rights. That's right. Uh, they haven't uh, agreed to the terms of service. And by the way, the terms of service and the various iterations of them have been part of a multi-year uh, uh, review by Judge Coe and the plaintiffs, as well as Google has uh, updated its terms of service over the years. Uh, we thought all of this would be um, made crystal clear by the Supreme Court last term in the Spokio decision, uh, which was uh, going to, we had hoped, uh, illuminate uh, when plaintiffs have standing and when they don't have standing based on uh, violations of statutes where Congress has created a private right of action. Uh, unfortunately, the Spokio case, and in, indeed in this case, Judge Coe stayed the litigation uh, at the request of Google so that uh, the court and Judge Coe's court could have some uh, further illumination from the Supreme Court about uh Google's arguments that the plaintiff here had not established standing. Unfortunately, I think it's safe to say that the Supreme Court uh, didn't do a very good job in illuminating for anybody uh, sort of concrete uh, specifics on when uh, standing is... uh, So the standing argument, if I remember right, is... Uh, you have to have some concrete injury to have standing because that's what Article uh, 3 says. There has to be a case or controversy, uh, and there has to be some actual thing you're fighting about, like damages. Um, I have to say I, I find it a little odd that if Congress passes a law saying you're entitled to $10,000 if somebody wiretaps you, that the courts would say, Oh, but that's not a real case because we need to see some actual harm. You know, the law's been violated. It says I get $10,000. It strikes me as a pretty concrete case of controversy. Well, and and that's probably where things have have essentially teed themselves out. I think people were hoping that the Spokio case would narrow that. But what the Spokio case says, yes, you do need concrete harm. Uh, for constitutional purposes, but they don't have to be tangible. They can be intangible harms, and indeed Congress can elevate a harm by passage of a statute so that a violation of the statute itself will rise to um, the concreteness that the Supreme Court uh, recognizes. Um, the question then is, what wouldn't rise to a concrete harm if Congress has passed yeah. a statute that allows for a private right of action? And I think... Uh, uh, defendants will continue to search for that golden nugget of where that's not the case. But that's not the case here. Uh, I think Judge Coe said that in this case, uh, here the allegation is that there is a violation of a well-understood uh, right to privacy and that Congress's passing of a statute that says that uh, you need permission to intercept these emails unless it qualifies for an exception that it's necessary or incidental to the uh, to the service of the providing the email service um, that which she had already said that the email service that Google provided the scanning was not uh, qualifying for such an exception uh, that violation of privacy was concrete enough and that the passage that Congress's passage of that was an acknowledgement of that uh, so, so the, to speak. The, the big worry here I, I think from Google's point of view has always been you, know, you beat these cases first on Spokio grounds nothing, mm-hmm. nothing concrete and then you break up the class by saying everybody has different damages which they certainly do uh, except if Congress has said you're going to get $10,000 per violation Everybody gets those uh, damages, and suddenly the class looks perfectly 
maintainable, uh, at least as to the statutory damages. And that's an enormous number. Uh, and so um, is that the the way this case is going to shake out? Well, I, I think there's still, look, this the individual uh, defendants, I think the, the issue there, Judge Coe ruled against Google, which I thought uh, could have gone Google's way, was whether the emails themselves uh, included content that one would have a reasonable expectation of privacy over. And so I think there is this sort of disconnect between what Judge Coe and the Spokio court case said is that these these allegations, these statutes are well-founded in, in the uh, reasonable expectation we have to privacy and that there is a tort of invasion of privacy. But under a typical invasion of privacy claim, you would have to show that you would have some that there was something that you felt should be private. You oh, well, had reasonable the expectation That's to be the private. end of the class. That's the end it? of the class. I still think that that was a, an argument that we could see maybe appealed uh, to the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit or the Supreme Court going the other way on. Otherwise, uh, it's. Uh, I agree with you. What is there that doesn't qualify as, as uh, for standing when Congress passes a statute? Yeah. All right. Uh, well, speaking of um, California, uh, they've got a new dumb uh, kind of liability, I, I have to say. They passed a law saying that, uh, I, I don't know if you use IMDB, uh, Markham, mm-hmm. but uh, it's the, it's a website that tells you everything you wanted to know about movies uh, and actors and actresses, uh, including when they were born. Uh, and that has galled uh, uh, apparently every uh, um, uh, actress or actor born after or be born before 1992. Uh, and they got a, uh, the Screen Actors Guild got a law passed that said IMDb has to take down the date of birth and the age at the request of anybody who's listed in uh, IMDb, uh, um, which. I, I, I fly immediately. It was, it's got to be unconstitutional. These are true facts. Uh, this is like shades of the right to be forgotten. Uh, uh, um, and uh, and then it occurred to me, and they, 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 they expressly pitch it this way. They said, no, we're trying to stamp out age discrimination. And this is a tool for age discrimination. I mean, if if somebody said, I don't want you to put my race in uh, a database from which I was being, people were being hired, you might say, yeah. Uh, or if you're Airbnb, uh, you might say, I don't, I'm not going to do that. Or I, if, if, if the state passed a law saying Airbnb cannot uh, include the race of the customers, uh, we'd probably say, yeah, maybe that's all right. So um, it, it, it's, a, it's a dumb law. Uh, particularly in the trivial circumstances of actors and actresses in Hollywood, uh, talk about a, a privileged, uh, oppressed minority. Um, uh, but uh, uh, maybe it withstands judicial review. What do you think? I, I agree with you. I think there's no way that this stands constitutional scrutiny. Um, and from a policy perspective, it's this is incredibly stupid. So first of all, we don't, in America... Uh, settled jurisprudence is we don't own facts. You don't have a right to own facts. The Feist decision in 1992 made that clear that things like your address, where you live, how old you are, those are facts. They're in the public domain. We don't have any sort of uh, legal right to that, and, and maybe there's a moral right in some way. Europe sort of leans that way, but in the United States, we don't we don't have that that that. 
that uh, that legal right. And here, this, as you say, the age, your age, is a fact, uh, and it's in various different domains. You can find it uh, on not just IMDb, but there's any number of databases where you well, can find is, that's what's that ironic. kind said, of information. They said, yes, we recognize that uh, you know uh, Kim Kardashian's age is going to be known, but what about those poor kind of second-rank actors and actresses who are only in IMDb? Those are the people we want to protect. So, I, uh, again, kind of silly, but. Yeah, I agree. But what if they say, well, we also don't want, you know, uh, other facts that are that are in the public domain to be made available for any number of reasons. And I think it's very dangerous when we when governments start to censor things that are in the public domain for which we don't have intellectual property rights. And here uh, it, I think, makes a laughing stock out of the more serious issue of things like discrimination and age discrimination, other kinds of discrimination, and the fact that you can uh, address those by just wiping out one database and an age that someone is on one database as if that will put an end to the discrimination or even make a meaningful dent in the discrimination is laughable. Yeah. So, um, well... Then let me let me ask you one other question. I I, I have to say your your um, skepticism of the, uh, about this uh, does you credit because I'm willing to bet your birthday is after 1960. Um, uh, the other thing that that we have seen in the last week and that you probably know m- much more than I do about wouldn't be hard um, is the FCC had a proposal from Chairman Wheeler to. To say we want to free the set-top box so that people can use whatever uh, uh, box they happen to have to watch uh, cable, um, and and the, you know, the cable boxes are notoriously not very good. Um, I, my lack of expertise here is derived from the fact that I have never paid any cable company a nickel. In my lifetime, I, 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 I was an early cord cutter, uh, so I know nothing about this. Uh, but if you have paid them uh, a lot of money, you probably have strong views. Um, why did uh, Wheeler propose this and then pull it back? Well, you are, first of all, under the 10% of people that don't have that kind of uh, connection with a uh, paid television provider. It's, uh, it's, it's to your credit. Um, so... There was concern when Tom Wheeler, the chairman of the FCC, became the chairman of the FCC that as the former lobbyist for the Cable Association, he would give the Cable Association all sorts of sweetheart treatment. Uh, and that has not been the case since no. he's been the chairman of the FCC. In fact, uh, I think the cable industry would say that he's been tougher on the cable industry and more adverse to them on issues that they care about than uh, any chairman in recent history. He knows where all the bodies are buried. He knows exactly what they have in mind on these things, and he knows he knows how to uh, bring them to heel. Well, and let's, let's face it, the public is not going to have any uh, sympathy for cable companies complaining that they're being treated unfairly, especially those that have had to wait multiple hours for their cable company to show up at their door to provide them service. But <laughs> um, here, this law stems from, uh, this, this rulemaking stems from a law that was passed when the Cable Act was passed in the early 90s, where Congress said that the FCC should ensure that uh, there is competition among set-top box devices. And the idea back then was that because cables, uh, especially back then, essentially had local monopolies for that service, that they would be able to vertically integrate with the boxes and that there ought to be some competition among those boxes in the same way that when um, the FCC ensured that there were competitions that even though AT&T was a monopoly over the phone line, 
the FCC said that you could create, uh, that there should be competition for the phones themselves, that you mm-hmm. could plug in any phone to the end of the AT&T line, and that opened up innovation. The concept is that you should be able to plug any set-top box that you buy at Best Buy into the end of your cable system, and there should be competition in that space. Um, so Congress directed the FCC to establish a technical advisory committee and put that together to come up with recommendations about how to foment such competition uh, for consumers. Uh, it, the advisory committee was kind of evenly divided between representatives that largely represented cable company interests or cable companies and those that represented software companies and Silicon Valley interests. And shockingly, they were not able to come to consensus. <laughs> I'm astonished. In fact, uh, they evenly divided and submitted two different proposals to the FCC. They were not able to coalesce around one. And one was called the app-based approach, which was uh, the one that was being promoted by the cable industry, which essentially is that um, that cable companies would uh, allow their devices to where you could download apps like your Netflix app, but also the HBO Go app and other apps where if you had a cable subscription and you could authenticate that you had a cable subscription, you could watch your HBO Go on a device. You could download that. You didn't have to go through your set-top box. You can watch it on your iPad and other things. Um, and uh, the non-app-based approach, which basically said that cable companies should make the stream of content available to uh, through some sort of certification process to software manufacturers and device manufacturers that wanted to provide their own set-top box experience to the consumer and sell that. Uh, the FCC uh, largely went with that latter proposal, uh, proposed that in a rulemaking, uh, and they just withdrew the item. Uh, it's a complicated question. There's a question of whether the FCC has the authority to actually mandate uh, uh, competition, especially uh, over non-device, non-hardware type of things like software mm-hmm. uh, issues. Um, there are copyright issues. The Copyright Office actually weighed in, uh, raising concerns about the FCC's uh, proposal. Uh, and there are contract issues. So uh, these issues have to go to things like when the cable company and a Disney uh, contract about where their channel will show up on the channel lineup and how it will be presented to consumers, uh, whether these rules uh, have the ability of going down a path that allows the FCC to s- disrupt that kind of contracting. Um, and, and, and they didn't know this before they proposed the rule? The FCC went through that, and they've tried to address those kind of concerns. Um, and on So the, really what happened is they lost their majority. Uh, well, uh, there's been a lot of concerns, and the press is reporting that Commissioner Rosenwurzel is, has held out her vote. The two Republicans are opposed to the chairman's proposal, and, and it appears that Commissioner Rosenwurzel is, is the one that is, is her vote is needed to get to consensus. Uh, it's not clear wh- whether they'll be able to get to consensus, and after this Congress adjourns, she actually uh, stops being a commissioner because uh, she is on borrowed times. She's been renominated, but Congress hasn't actually author- passed her uh, confirmation. Oh, so, but by by bouncing this off, it means that this isn't coming back. Well, she, she she's uh, she's going to turn into a pumpkin sometime in December, probably. That's right. And now we still have a number of weeks, and they don't need to have another vote on the agenda. It's on circulation, which means if they, the three commissioners can agree on a proposal, uh, they can vote this out, the three of them, uh, without having to go to a formal meeting, and it gets done. Uh, there will certainly I, be litigation over if it if it happens. And there are complicated questions. So the contracting question is a complicated 
complicated one. Uh, there are questions about whether this perhaps undoes the Betamax principle, where once you have paid for the content, you should be able should to do it. things yeah. in your home with the content that, uh, despite how the contract says uh, what it says uh, with the MVBD about how things should appear and uh, what your rights over that content are. So it's not uh, easily... Uh, Uh, addressed. Uh, it's complicated, and there's certainly going to be litigation uh, even if uh, the FCC passes the final rule. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting is the docket is fairly lopsided. Um, there isn't a lot of... Uh, There aren't a lot of technology companies that saying we are waiting to jump into the space and make set-top boxes mm -hmm. no. uh, if only the rules allowed us to do so. One of the reasons is making hardware devices is you know famously a small margin business um the other yeah but but google's got you know they, they've got the amazon echo uh, you've got google with chromecast and and their echo uh, uh imitator i mean there are people <clears throat> who want to make this stuff you've just raised the two companies that have engaged in the docket but But in both cases, uh, Amazon has raised some concerns with the proposal and, uh, uh, and uh, sort of identified some alternative ways to try to bridge the gap uh, between what the FCC has proposed and what pro programmers are raising as concerns. And, uh, and Google hasn't been incredibly involved in the docket. So uh, it, it is a fairly lopsided docket in terms of who's weighing so in. I have a solution. The solution is Wheeler tells the CEOs of the cable companies, uh, I'm going to come out with the answer. I will bring it to your home sometime between now and December 24. Uh, if you're there, you'll like it. If you're not, I'm going with Google and Amazon. Uh, uh, and they just stay home and sit and wait for, uh, for Wheeler to show up. I think it's only, only fair. Okay, um, let's turn to Ellen uh, uh, Nakashima, who, as I said, has been uh, writing three-quarters of the content in the Washington Post uh, and uh, all of the content that uh, Vladimir Putin will hate. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and I wanted to, to start with that because you've written a lot of stories about what the – Uh, Russians are doing in cyberspace, uh, and the one that the, the most recent one I thought was really interesting. Um, what they are doing as a way of responding to the uh, remarkable amount of evidence that they shot down the Malaysian air, uh, 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 airplane over, uh, or their their equipment shot it down, um, and and they have responded by spewing lies all over the media that they control. Uh, but when uh, individual journalists mm. come up with actual facts, they've been trashing the individuals, hacking them, um, and um, you know, producing smear reports on them. Um, this is new, isn't it? This isn't new for, for, for Russia. Right. Yeah, inside Russia, they've <laughs> inside, been doing this exactly. for, for 15 years. Yes. Uh, but, but, and, and they've started to do it in, in Western Europe. And in fact, in this case that you mentioned, they've been doing it to a citizen journalist outfit based in the UK, in England, and in particular targeting, uh, the founder, uh, of this Bellingcat, uh, citizen journalism site, uh, by, 
publishing, as you say, all sorts of uh, of articles online and RT and Sputnik that kind of uh, impugn his integrity and suggest that his outfit is linked to the CIA. They've tried to spearfish him and his colleagues. They got one of his contributor colleagues in Moscow's um, access to his email account, his credentials, took some of his data and posted it online, which include included personal details, his girlfriend's name, his passport picture, and and some other very uh, sort of personal details. Uh, this this Moscow-based correspondent had also been very active in reporting on, uh, for instance, Russia's um, bombing campaign in in Syria that was hitting uh, the rebels and civilians and and not ISIS as as Russia made it out to be. So so this is the sort of thing that. Uh, you know, researchers say can also be in store for, uh, let's say, journalists in the United States who might uh, cross uh, yeah. Russia, poke the bear, let's say. Uh, they're starting to really become a lot more aggressive in cyberspace. And in fact, the uh, FBI, the intelligence community, is actively investigating the extent to which uh, Russian intelligence uh, uh, services and hackers are engaged in a kind of covert influence operations campaign in the United States to hack, yes, but not just hack, but maybe also to try to, in some cases, strategically release information that might cast doubt on the targets, embarrass them, humiliate them, just sow a little bit of doubt about the the credibility of our institutions, of the outcome of the U.S. election if not to actually sway the election to influence it to a particular outcome, to cast doubt on its legitimacy. Yeah, this is, you know, the New York Times was famously hacked by the People's Republic of China, the PLA, uh, but the presumption was they were hacking it to find out who their uh, sources were, uh, and uh, they didn't do anything with the information other than use it to, try to pursue people who uh, were inside China. Uh, this is taking that one step further in the uh, uh, in the usual Putin way, right? Uh, right. There's, there, there, there's no line he isn't prepared to cross if he thinks that the line is uh, not really being uh, uh, monitored and enforced. Uh, I, also, I also say for Russia, it, it, this should not be surprising in that for Russia – it makes imminent sense. This is very cost-effective asymmetrical warfare. When you're not able to invest in the military, uh, in your defenses the way you can, or in a way that would be equivalent to how the U.S. invests in some military, uh, and you're not able to feed your people the way you should feed your people, engaging in this kind of propaganda, spending a couple of billion dollars in this kind of activity, is a very cost-effective way to prop up your own leadership, make other people look worse, and fight asymmetrically when you can't fight symmetrically. So this, I, I, I agree with you. This, this shows that authoritarian governments have gotten better at the Internet than anyone expected them to uh, and better at democracy because that's what, what uh, Putin has done is he's managed to uh, install an authoritarian regime that can withstand a certain amount of democracy by uh, using the force of the state to spread Enormous uncertainty about what's true and what's not. Uh, not uh, not uh, a, a 
ideological totalitarian message where there is only one truth and everybody, of course, knows it isn't true, but they've, they, they've got no alternatives. Now, uh, it looks to me as though the way he keeps control inside Russia is to have many truths, right? And so, again, people don't know what to believe, but uh, they like what he looks like with his shirt off. Well, and, you know, we have a history uh, in sort of the in older mediums, in radio and television, of trying to, at, from a government level, to try to in, uh, take on that propaganda through our own propaganda. And I think we've fallen way behind. I think uh, yeah. uh, we have to spend, as, as a government, uh, more equivalent dollars uh, to combat that kind of speech with what we think is appropriate speech. Uh, because the right answer is not to try to censor or take down these sites or play that kind of whack-a-mole. It's trying to get better speech out there. And we spend a pittance relative to what gov- uh, Russia spends in terms of getting our own message out. So here, I, I, uh, I don't often say nice things about the Europeans, but I will in this case. The EU has a disinformation uh, uh detox mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, email that they send out regularly kind of analyzing what the line out of Russia is and giving people a feeling for uh, uh, why certain memes are suddenly really popular on Sputnik mm-hmm. and RT. And, uh, right. And I think NATO is also looking into uh, studying propaganda and information yep. operations. And, and they are saying that, in fact, Russia is at the forefront of this. And the West, and in particular the United States, I think, is, as you pointed out, Mark, in a sense, far behind. And I think the the government is a bit conflicted about this because I think, in a sense, it doesn't want to feel like it, it needs to descend into the gutters to, to fight back. How does it fight back against, you know, propaganda and, and, and you know, obnoxious techniques on the Internet? Does it do so by using you know, deception or deceptive techniques? There's there's a lot mm-hmm. of uh, anxiety about that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think I think there are some difficult questions about mm-hmm. some of those kind of things, but there's a much simpler question that we should be able to answer, which is we certainly need better truthful speech that our government promotes and disseminates uh, because we're not going to engage, especially in the U.S., in censorship, but we see pressure to do so. So when it's not just Russia, but it's ISIS and recruiting materials and others, mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure to start trying to take that down and get ISPs to take that down. And uh, ISPs certainly will voluntarily take that down. But I think the U.S. government also needs to create a much more robust counter-speech strategy uh, to get better speech out there uh, for people. So the uh, problem with that, I think, is um, the profound lack of enthusiasm that Americans have for the American government's official views on many things. Uh, At any given time, half of the country is going to dismiss as propaganda and wrong too whatever the U.S. government says. Uh, Now it's Republicans who uh, think it's all whacked, but uh, I'm old enough to remember when Bush uh, was lying according to half of the media and uh, all of the Democratic Party, uh, uh, and so the idea that you could come up with a uh, an authoritative response to this is, I think, thin. Yeah, I, well, I, I don't think it's. As, I'll disagree. I think that there's a lot there's a lot of low hanging fruit that you can respond to, and I also think you don't need to have one uh, voice on our side. We ought to foment uh, many different voices, including many different government voices, to combat different iterations and different uh, types of content out there. Uh, 
Uh, but we shouldn't do anything. We shouldn't let that be an excuse for letting Russia continue to be to engage in this kind of asymmetrical propaganda with no government response because uh, it creates a lot of collateral damage and we can't answer it with nothing. So I, I, our, the, the other problem we have is the complete collapse of the moral authority of the mainstream media, right? Uh, uh, the, the New York Times, uh, maybe they did it themselves, but they probably were pushed pretty hard by Drudge uh, uh, into – you know, half the debate. They, 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 when they publish a story, mm-hmm. everybody assumes it has an agenda, and the agenda is uh, center left. Uh, um, and so, um, if the New York Times said this isn't true, uh, a lot of people would say, "Oh, I got my doubts about that," just because it's the New York Times. And the Washington Post the same. So, I uh, this is different from even the 1980s, when by and right. large. Uh, what mainstream media said we all accepted as reality. Um, so, um, Putin, right. Putin's enthusiastic about deconstructing the Washington Post and the New York Times authority, isn't he? Well, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure he is. And, I mean, look at, <laughs> in this general election campaign, the, 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 half the country thinks what CNN's you know, putting out there is is total bunk, and then the other half thinks you know what Fox is putting out there is is complete propaganda. So yes, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 although yeah. I, I would say so, I disagree with the premise. Though yeah. I think in some ways this is the best of times, and right. I think the the state of affairs we had in the 1970s, where you had three media outlets and everyone took what they said for the gospel truth when it wasn't uh, the gospel truth in many cases. Uh, yes, we have many more outlets, and sometimes there are points of view, but we have right. many more ways to verify those those communications. So but do we? I wouldn't. Yeah. Ru- uh, well, I think so. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily within a 24-hour news cycle, right. and that's the danger. Uh, and that's the mm-hmm. that's sure. We wrapped up that birth certificate thing right away. There you huh? go. Yeah, but but we have more <laughs> outlets for communication. Right. I mean, would anyone really want to go back to just three outlets for that kind of? No, we uh, can't. Information? We're not going no. back. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I'm. Pretty conservative, and I uh, I always read the New York Times on the assumption I'm reading the enemy's propaganda. Uh, uh, but um, if 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 people are willing to say anything Russia does is good by me, if it hurts my adversaries in the domestic political scene, we have big problems, and I that's what I see. I mean, I, I, I see people who ought to be much more sensible about our national security uh, embracing uh, Russian hacking uh, and Russian leaks because it seems to hurt Hillary Clinton. Or saying that it's not even the Russians. Oh, yes. Well, uh, the, the debate Monday night when Donald Trump suggested that the hack of the DNC was not uh, committed by the Russians, but maybe some 400-pound guy sitting on a bed. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I, uh, well, his, his enthusiasm for Vladimir Putin, I simply don't understand unless, uh, unless he owes him $900 million uh, uh, still. It's just weird. But, you know, Markham, you, you pointed out the need to uh, try to call out and hold Russia accountable on, yeah. on the propaganda issue. There's a, you know, equally strong kind of, uh, pressure from, from some quarters to have the White House, the Obama administration call out the Russian government and hold it accountable for its hacks 
for instance, into the DNC, the Democratic National Committee's uh, systems that then resulted in a massive leak to WikiLeaks, which then resulted in the resignation of the DNC chairwoman, which became sort of the first indication, the first time people started to talk about perhaps there's a Russian, you know, master plan here or a Russian effort to try to meddle in the U.S. election. Well, the, the Obama, despite strong evidence, uh, and high confidence that Russia, the Russian government is behind the DNC hack, you know, the, the, the White House is very reluctant to, uh, point the finger publicly. And, and part of that is because once they do, if they do, there's going to be a strong pressure to say, well, what are you, you know, what are you going to do next about right. it? What are you going to do right. about it? Yeah. That's right. right. So, right. Uh, uh, I think that's a very legitimate concern. I mean, when you're dealing with a government the size of China, uh, uh, Russia, uh, these are complicated and it's not so as easy as just saying we know it's them and we want them to stop. Right. Uh, so it takes some more sophisticated, uh, engagement. But I do think if you had a more robust counter speech, uh, operation, these communications don't have to come from the White House. Uh, mm-hmm. When it's coming from the White House, that has a certain uh, uh, effect on geopolitics. But there are certainly other avenues by which we can name and shame uh, those entities that are trying to undermine our political process. Yeah, I, for one, would like to see a photoshopped picture of Vladimir Putin in bed weighing 400 pounds. Uh, I think that would do a lot to uh, advance the, uh, the narrative. Uh, um, so... I'm very troubled by this, the, the, the reluctance to attribute because of a fear that they got nothing by way of response. Because if they got nothing by way of response, we're in deep trouble. Or maybe they do have something they'd like to do, but they fear that doing so right now, especially what, a month out from the election, will, will seem as overly, unduly partisan, and, you know, tipping, the, putting the thumb on the scales in favor of the Democrats. Or maybe they are, you know, concerned about how this could play geopolitically, and we might still hope that Russia will come come to oh. senses. <laughs> I in think Syria. Those, that that ship has <laughs> that sailed. sailed. <laughs> anyway, you know, what I'm saying there's just more than one one factor here that weighs but into. The, it. But yes, all of that suggests that um, he gets away with it. He gets away with it at a very important time in our history, uh, uh, and the next time. Uh, 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 there's a presidential right. campaign. Uh, he's liable to get away with it again as long as he picks the out party to help uh, and the in party to mock and to harass. Uh, that is not a good outcome for uh, uh, for the U.S. Uh, um, a, and I, I have to say, I, I I I think you're right that they're afraid that this is going to look um, partisan um, against Trump. Uh, or maybe they're really afraid that if they get into a mudslinging contest, uh, you know, Putin's got more mud. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, let's hope that there are some things that are happening behind the scenes that we're not aware of. And, you know, it's not unheard of that sometimes we are able to engage in communications that say, we know what you're doing and you don't want to see us escalate because oh, this is what? what's at stake Crap. for you. That's just, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You think, no, yeah, you because think that's just you, a throwaway you, line? You, that's, that's a great line if you've demonstrated that you actually have something right. and that they should be afraid of it. But we have done nothing to demonstrate that. Uh, uh, and uh, 
Putin, he's, you know, he needs to see it before he's going to be deterred by it. Uh, he thinks that we're a paper tiger. Uh, and in fact, he wants to show that we're a paper tiger. That's what he's all about. Uh, uh, and he's doing a surprisingly good job of it. Yeah, look, I, I think I'm, I'm not as optimistic that he's doing such a great job. I think Russia's got ignored enormous problems both domestically and internationally and and this is one way for him to fight that fight i'd rather be the u.s and have the assets that we have than russia and have the assets they have uh, so i'm hopeful that there are some things that are the communications are happening we have shown occasionally our ability to engage in kind of that same warfare to disable uh, foreign governments efforts to harm our security and we can do that and we've demonstrated our ability to do that in the past uh, so I, I'm hopeful that those kind of conversations are happening. I think if there were a full-blown cyber warfare, which I hope there isn't with a country like Russia, I'm confident that we would have a, a pretty good ability to disrupt their systems as well. Well, oh, President Obama yeah. has said as much. Yeah. There's no problem <laughs> disrupting their systems. So the, the question is, what price are you willing right. to pay? And everybody's systems can be disrupted. And he's not without problems. I mean, there are ways to make him look bad domestically, too, and disrupt his systems in a way that really harm his people. So I, I think he has pressure points as well, and I'm hopeful that those kind of discussions are, are happening. Maybe the NSA could uh, get all of his e- emails and then um, hand them over to uh, you know some site online and have them all leave uh, this publicly. Is, uh, this, is, this is what I've been proposing, that there should be mutually assured doxing. Uh, <laughs> we should know, you know just how often does he get Botox treatments? How often does his girlfriend get Botox treatments? How many kids did he have with that girlfriend? Uh, uh, and what accounts does he pay? Paying her uh, um, couture uh, uh, expenses from uh, uh, why not right uh, that plus <laughs> plus him weighing five, uh, 400 pounds I think uh, that, yeah. that's a good first step. Put it up on MoscowLeaks.com. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. Yeah. Um, so the other issue that that this raises, I think, and, and you've written on this too, Ellen, is. Uh, uh, how we should be organized to fight wars like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, right now, NSA and Cyber Command uh, are headed by the same person, even though they're two separate organizations. And Cyber Command is a subordinate command uh, to STRATCOM uh, uh, and therefore uh, not fully autonomous, uh, although pretty close. Uh, and you, I think you may have broken this story, uh, uh, that the administration is eager to stop having military guys run NSA and put it to a civilian in there and then take the military uh, uh, path that uh, led to the head of NSA and instead turn it into an independent cyber command uh, uh, that uh, uh, would have a three-star in charge. Uh, um, That means breaking up NSA and cyber command and creating more tensions than already exist between the two. Um, how, where is that debate and mm-hmm. uh, who's lining up on which side? Well, I, I think the days of uh, a dual hat, uh, one person in charge of both uh, agencies are, are numbered. It, it looks like the administration is moving toward separating the two agencies, the military hacker agency and then these, uh, the, the intel spy you know, agency, the NSA, putting them under separate directors or heads. Uh, the director of national intelligence and the secretary of defense are expected to soon uh, make a formal recommendation to Obama, to the White House, 
that that they do so. And my understanding is that both uh, Jim Clapper, the DNI, and Ash Carter, the Def- Secretary of Defense, favor having a civilian um, head of NSA, which would be a break with tradition, as you know, having been yes. the general counsel. It's been headed by a, a, a military uh, flag officer for, for, for since '52, but. Um, they have not yet put in their uh, recommendation, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, so they're holding off. And they're holding I, off. I, I, I gather that uh, uh, Admiral Rogers has been on both sides of these issues, but but is of the view that this is not the time to break them up. Right. I think he sees. You know, he he says that eventually this is where it's got to be headed. Um, but under sort of pressure, uh, to, you know, when pressed about it at the on, at a hearing on the Armed Services Committee a few weeks ago, he said, "Well, maybe now is not the time." Uh, and, and this was um, a question asked by Senator John McCain, who who very much favors keeping uh, the two organizations together, and I, I think having um, a military head in, in charge of both. Uh, now, I think the Senate Intelligence Committee favors uh, splitting the two and probably having a civilian head in charge of, of the NSA. So some of this could seem like a lot of rice bowl and turf war stuff, right. but but there there are some. Uh, it's it's it reflects sort of the way we the government the, the people uh, are are looking at how we approach are organized to fight the cyber you know cyber threats cyber war. Do we have uh, when we're taking, you know, a, doing attacks that that uh, destroy or disrupt or damage? Do we have fighters doing this in uniform who are not uh, who 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 want the enemy to know who's behind the attack? And then when we do the more more covert spy stuff, where we're hacking into systems, we're gathering intel, but we want to do it secretly. We don't want to leave tracks. We don't want the um, the target to know who did it. We want those done by spies. Well, those are two sort of separate organizations with separate missions. Mm-hmm. Well, and in fact, there's many things that we want our intelligence gathering community to be able to do that have nothing to do with military. That's right. Uh, issues there they have to do with geopolitics or with commercial issues and or negotiations over environmental issues that we hope that we're getting good intelligence in those spaces, but they have nothing to do with the military agenda. Right? No, and actually the, the the biggest problem NSA has had is that that mission serving the civilian arms of government on things that are not expressly military has is, is on a daily basis the thing that they get the most good feedback for. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in the president's daily brief, right. and the president is saying, oh, wow, I can't believe you got that. Uh, um, and he doesn't say that about, uh, you know, troop movements uh, right. in Serbia. That's right. um, uh, but from the military's point of view, the thing they really want NSA to be able to do is to tell them if there are troop movements that threaten American forces wherever they are. They are. Mm-hmm. And when they go to war, they want to be served in a way that actually every time we go to war, NSA has to rediscover how it's going to serve the military. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that uh, if you don't have a military officer uh, who is subordinate to the combatant commanders uh, in that role – um, there's a distinct possibility that the civilian who's running it just will never see the, the, the value of, uh, of 
getting that kind of fine-grained yeah. intelligence. You put your finger on the main uh, argument against splitting the the two. And so, there, you know, that's just it, there's there's a point of contention there uh, between you know advocates and critics and and some who say, well, look, you know, NSA is always going to have to work closely with and support Cyber Command, even if and when they split, and, uh, and 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 they'll just have to share intelligence. But there are others who who, who feel that you know just because of, of of you know tradition and the way bureaucracies work. If one organization is, is, is separate and it's not organizationally beholden to the other, well, it's not going to really, you know, care whether or not it gives the inf- information it should. The other problem I see here is, um, it's always a tricky, uh, uh, there's always a tricky fight between the intelligence side and the uh, destruction side, uh, right. uh, in dealing with particular cyber problems. If you've got a cyber command, Head who's a three star and a uh, the NSA head who's a two star. Uh, those debates will be short and brutal. Uh, and mm-hmm. I suspect that one of the reasons why the DNI wants to put a civilian in there is that the civilian will not just immediately salute when told uh, we're mm, taking down all of these units. Uh, uh, even though they've been really good for intelligence purposes, yes. we want to we establish that we can strike there so we're striking at your best intelligence sources. And uh, uh, a, a, a civilian head is probably going to kick up much more of a fuss than somebody who's heavily outranked by Cyber Command. All right, two other things that I just wanted to cover quickly. Uh, Snowden, you wrote stories on the Snowden. Uh, I report uh, them. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to express a view. <laughs> not my role. Uh, the the the, the uh, Washington Post has already gotten in enormous trouble uh, uh, for saying the obvious, which is that he shouldn't be uh, uh, pardoned. Uh, uh, and people said, but, but you got a Pulitzer out of it. How can you not uh, want him to be uh, uh, honored here in America? Um, a, but that pardon movement uh, was met by, I think he wrote this story too, the Intelligence Committee uh, uh, saying no way he should be pardoned uh, and um, suggesting that, uh, you know, he didn't even break his legs when he was, uh, this, mm-hmm. that great story about him breaking his legs in training turns out to be shin splints. Um, it, that story's kind of disappeared. Does it have any legs at all? <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I... I I mean, it's a story that's been around ever since Snowden left uh, the United States. It's it's just been there, sort of simmering along, flares up every once in a while when, say, uh, you know, someone like Eric Holder comes out and suggests that maybe uh, Snowden should be partner, or at least that you know what he did was done in the public interest. Uh, and, and then you you have this, you know, you, you have episodic uh, efforts to to get. Uh, pardons through, mm-hmm. you know, these petitions. So I, I mean, it, does it have legs? It's it's not on the front pages. And Is there, do you think there's but, anybody inside the administration who's pushing for it? No, I, yeah. I can't. So then it doesn't. Have but any but there's there's very little upside for people in the administration to push this, and I think that structurally, that's why I I would disagree that it's a no-brainer, and I think that whether that you should not pardon them, I think mm-hmm. the for the following reasons. First. He, Obama's very unlikely to pardon him. Precedent is he will not pardon him. Uh, and uh, it, secondly, 
there's very little reason why Snowden would ever come back voluntarily because he will be convicted under the Espionage Act. Mm -hmm. I think the debate and the policy concern are there are issues that are not so black and white, whether he was guilty of of Mm -hmm. crimes under the Espionage Act and whether indeed in the long run he will have done more good than harm uh, in what he did. Um, for national security interests. No doubt Snowden violated the Espionage Act. No doubt he disrupted intelligence efforts. No doubt he harmed U.S. interests abroad. No doubt about any of those things. Um, whether, though, at the, in the end, but on the flip side of that, the intelligence community did themselves no favor by creating a situation to allow him to steal that kind of data, uh, by making it as easy as it was, um, and there's not really a process for him to have gone through normal whistleblower protocols when he was uh, a contractor and whether they should have had a contractor doing the things and having access to the kind of information they had. The fact that they lied to Congress and, in fact, hacked some of the congressional offices that were trying to provide oversight to the intelligence community didn't help themselves. So Wait, now I you're think talking about the CIA? I'm talking about the CIA, well, but the intelligence community in generally. But... But the intelligence community on whole has made it clear to President Obama that he will have severely undermined their relationship with him if he were to pardon him. So I'm bringing the CIA into that, and the intelligence community has been monolithic Mm. in their message that there should be no pardon, that he has harmed intelligence efforts. And my what I'm saying is that there might be some thought to whether a pardon and bringing him back into the United States under some sort of agreement Mm. Um, is better than having him in Russia doing the things he does in Russia. And I think there is some apocs on both houses in terms of how the intelligence community uh, handled the issues leading up to what happened with Snowden and uh, how they've responded to congressional oversights for some of the things they've done. Having said that, I'm not saying Snowden uh, is meritorious of a pardon because of any moral uh, reason. I'm just saying that there's not really a mechanism to bring him into the United States absent a pardon. Yeah, well, unless he unless he gets so tired of sitting over in Russia uh, uh, that uh, he says, I, you know, I'm going to go back and take my chances. He can, but, he there, can, but well, there are no chances. He'll be prosecuted. He'll, he'll be prosecuted, be, but yeah. he's going to make a pitch for jury nullification. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. his his claim he can't, he may not be able to formally make that pitch, but he's going to make it, and he's going to make it over and over again. And he'll have plenty of pro bono lawyers who are tired uh, tired of or are no longer representing Guantanamo detainees who will. Will enthusiastically jump at, at another opportunity to undercut. But whether US the government will have the prosecutorial discretion to do, to try to be nuanced with him, uh, they haven't shown any of that in how they've handled uh, the messaging they've had over Snowden. So I think there's no incentive for him to try to come back and see if he can work something. This is out. a guy who's who in the last three years has paid fewer taxes than anyone believes Donald Trump has paid. I uh, he's paid none. He's he's racking up new felonies every tax year. I uh, and uh, um, I think uh, uh, the idea that we we should say, oh yeah, come on over and we'll start negotiating your new felonies as well as your old ones is just crazy. I'm not arguing for that. I'm just saying that the decision tree is more, in my view, more nuanced and complicated than a simple. There's no way we should even consider it. Okay, so last uh, last topic, because uh, uh, I know uh, you've written on it, Ellen, and I'm sure Markham disagrees with me on this. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the the rule change that would allow uh, a um, 
a judge to enter a, uh, a search warrant, to, to issue a search warrant for a um, computer that is outside the district uh, is pending. It's been approved by the Supreme Court. It will go into effect December 1 uh, uh, unless Congress acts. Right. Uh, I, What's the prospect that Congress will act? <laughs> slim to none. Yeah, uh, <laughs> slim thought. is about to leave town. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so this change is pending. It's Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. And uh, it's obscure, but it comes about because the uh, Ju- Justice Department has been re- in recent years running some pretty wide, broad uh, brush uh pedophile or um, child porn investigations where to to identify the pedophiles who are using anonymizing techniques and uh, software like Tor, uh, they have to basically put software on a, on a on the website itself if they can find it and then and identify it and then hope anyone who comes to that website, assuming they are pedophiles, will pick up that software. So that's a form of sort of hacking essentially. They want to hack mm-hmm. the, the targets. And in order and then to then the do targets so, turn out to be everywhere in the world. And they turn out to be everywhere in the world. They turn turn out often not to be in the same district or state where the uh the original you know website is located. And so because the federal rules of criminal procedure, Rule 41, require that a search warrant, in this case a a warrant to hack, has to be issued by the judge in the district in which the target is located or the website would be located, uh, it, it turns out that you know, the government is saying, well, when we, when we apply for the warrant, we don't know where all of these various pedophile t- uh, sites are or, or targets are located, so we can't know in advance and can't go to all those districts and apply for warrants. So we're just going to apply in the site, in the district where that original uh, site is located. And some of the judges, about two dozen or so at least in the last year or so, have said, well, that's actually a violation, appears to be a violation of the rule. And some of them have denied. Yeah, most of them have said it's a violation of the law. Yes, they, they have. Basically said, to, but it's a but, it's a good faith mistake. It's not that big right. a deal. We're not going to uh, uh, suppress the evidence. Four of them, so though, have said we are going to suppress the evidence. Right. So hence the confusion and and the Justice Department's desire to get the rule clarified. Well, one is where, as, if I understand it yes. correctly, there's two parts. One is authorizing these kind of um, warrants when we don't know where right. the location right. is. The second one is where we know. The botnet. But where there's the the damage is in five or more different Correct. jurisdictions. The botnet. And I think the there's almost no reason for that kind of uh, authorization. But I think the higher level concern is that this has been done through the judicial conference and whether we consider this a procedural issue or whether we consider this a substantive issue. And my view is this feels more substantive than procedural. And in the past, Congress has amended the law to give uh, law enforcement more ability to have roving wiretaps and other types of tools that maybe are sort of in between procedural and substantive. And here I think we should, it is under Congress's prerogative, I know they have the ability to veto this, but if I were Congress, I would stand up for my jurisdiction and my prerogative to weigh in on this. Well, and they, to they can weigh the in, pro- but they, maybe they agree with it. Uh, maybe they don't want to weigh in on behalf of people who are uh, dealing in child porn. Well, I, so that certainly is how it's perceived. But if you were a victim of a botnet, right, your computer could be subject to a warrant. 
and from a different a jurisdiction across the country. Well, I'm not sure I care which jurisdiction. Uh, well, it makes it harder. Like, it's for, not like it, I think that, that the California judges would come up with a solution would, for botnets that is different. You from might not Virginia. care, but if your computer has been damaged, and part of this issue is the definition of damage under the under the uh, Title 18 is so broad um, that uh, you can be if you decided you wanted to fight that. Uh, you would have to travel to that jurisdiction to fight that. And for you, that may not be an issue, but for many people, it might be. I don't understand why the five districts or more is coupled with the when you don't know where the mm-hmm. computer is. I think those are two separate issues. Right. There's two separate reasonings for that so, yeah, change. So, I, I and they is, ought to be addressed separately. This is interesting. Sure. So there, there is the one uh, uh, thing that says people are coming here and we need to infect them all so that we can find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other is, is has been accurately perceived as dealing with botnets where they're just hundreds or thousands of uh, infected machines uh, and um, you'd have to go to first. You'd have to geolocate them, and then you'd have to go to hundreds of districts to get uh, orders. But, um, but remember, also botnets are what Google does. Botnet is, is anything that sort of automatically goes and searches a website. And there have been claims well, if, under if, the if CFA. It, if it does it illegally, you ha- you still have to have probable cause to believe that the law has been violated. Right, and there are there are people that have claimed that that kind of botnet is violating the law, violates the CFA, and under the CFA, if you remember. Damage is anything that equates to five, $5,000 or more of, of effort. If you hire a computer programmer just to do the due diligence to see whether anything has been, yeah. uh, information has been compromised, you've spent $5,000. The threshold is so low. Right. So the underlying statute that we're implicating, the CFAA, in terms of what prosecutors might go, is very broad. So and now, to give so this the, ability, the, the, this multi-district remote litigation to get warrants over computers that are across the country, I'm skeptical of, and I think it it feels more substantive than just procedural. So Google is, or the rest of the tech industry too, is is basically conjuring up scenarios that have never occurred. Uh, botnet victims whose computers have been taken over the, I mean, the botnet who want to object to the fact that the U.S. government is uh, searching for the bad guys who are on their computer. Nobody's ever done that. Nobody's ever gone to court to fight about that. Or uh, that some U.S. attorney somewhere, completely free from any oversight from the Justice Department, in, uh, inconsistent with our usual expectation, has decided to make criminal something that Google does, uh, searching, uh, you know, uh, the web, uh, uh, and goes to a local you know, uh, Southern District of Mississippi judge, uh, and gets a nationwide order allowing him not to actually prosecute, but just to gather intelligence about what, uh, uh, the, uh, uh the Google bot is doing. I, and again, never happened, uh, and it's implausible that a tech company like Google or anybody else is doing something you know, at, at the edge of that, who thinks they're being abused by one U.S. attorney, doesn't have resources well, or I, so recourse. I, I don't think I've seen any internet company actually weigh in raising concerns with this. So I don't think Google, okay. and I don't think Google okay, is so, worried so about this. We won't blame Google for your argument. No, no. But I, but I, I certainly the CFA has been interpreted to include those kind of routine sort of uh, issues, and whether you're just willing to rely totally on prosecutorial discretion or not, I think is is an issue that ought to be debated. 
and, but, but, uh, know, but, and and in in public, and not just say that this is just a judicial conference that no one knows about. The Supreme Court has signed off on it, and Congress ought to just give its blessing. Everybody to knows it. about it. There's there there are there are uh, petitions going. Ron Wyden is. Uh, Boring on and on about it on the floor. I, everybody knows about it. There just isn't any enthusiasm for overturning it. So, well, I don't. I don't think Congress has at least de- recently demonstrated ability to overturn anything or do anything <laughs> positively. So, uh, but I, I would say, if I were the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, I would say this ought to go through our process. Um, and uh, and when I say the process that Congress set up is we will review it and if we don't like it we'll stop it. That's right. And I think here what I would say if I were in Congress I'm just saying if I had an election certificate which no one in their right mind would give me one but if I had an election <laughs> certificate I say I would say we should stand up and at least debate this and we I think it's more substantive than procedural. Okay, I'm going to let you have the last word. Now I'm going to let Ellen have the last word. Uh, although I bet she doesn't want to express a view on the. Uh, uh, the merits of this, but mm. your your expectation is that there really just is not enough time to do anything about this? On Rule 41? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, no, given that, yeah, given that we are about a month out from the election, Congress is just re- waiting to you know, leave town. I, I don't see any Congress doing much of anything, you know, substantive in the time that's left. Uh, maybe hopefully pass the next budget. All right. It's a good lesson. Whenever you're you're wanting a situation where you w- don't want Congress to do something and then it happens, put the deadline when Congress is about to leave town or when they've already left town. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, uh, Markham, uh, thank you so much for uh, participating. Thanks to uh, Meredith Rathbone and to our three-peat uh, guest uh, Ellen. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Do I get a mug? Yeah, we. Yes, you will get a mug. Uh, uh, we'll just have to design it right. uh, uh, on Cafe Press, and then uh, we'll send it to you. Uh, the um, Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback, so uh, if you like this uh, um, uh, particular uh, episode, send us uh, your thoughts at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, or just make uh, more favorable five-star reviews on iTunes or other podcast aggregators. This has been episode 130. Of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up uh, um, shortly, we'll have Assistant Attorney General John Carlin, soon to be uh, uh, private practice John Carlin, uh, Jonathan Zittrain, uh, the Gruck uh, has agreed to uh, appear as well. And we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.